You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking to guitarist, singer, and songwriter Nancy Wilson about her debut studio solo album and the story of her band, Heart. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll also review two new records, the latest from glam indie artist Art Deco and the return of the legendary English singer-songwriter Marianne Faithful. One more unfortunate, weary of breath, rashly importunate, gone to her death. Take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashioned so slenderly, young and so fair. Look at that is a little bit of a track called The Bridge of Sighs from the new Marianne Faithful album, She Walks in Beauty, an odd collaboration, Greg, between Marianne Faithful and Warren Ellis doing the instrumental music and Thomas Hood, the uh, Romantic-era Victorian poet. Uh, who is Marianne Faithful? She has been with us and been a treasure since 1964 when she had her first hit, As Tears Go By, written by her then-boyfriend, Mick Jagger, a year before the Stones recorded it. She fell apart for a bit after writing Sister Morphine with the Stones. Uh, she became addicted to heroin, but she came back in a big way in the New Wave era with Broken English in uh, 1979 and has been a vibrant performer, singer, songwriter ever since, collaborating with a new generation of musicians, Damon Albarn, uh, John Bryan, Jarvis Cocker, uh, doing some really interesting things. We nearly lost her last year. She had a serious bout with COVID, but she made it through the other side at age 74, giving us this new record. Let's play a track from it, and we'll talk more about it. This is the title track. The uh, poem, of course, is by Lord Byron. She Walks in Beauty by Marianne Faithful. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies one shade the more one ray the less had half impaired the nameless grace which waves in every raven tress she Walks in Beauty from the new Marianne Faithful Warren Ellis collaboration. That is the title track of this new album. You know, Marianne Faithful has done just about everything except read romantic poetry over a backing track in <laughs> yes. her career. And now we have that moment. Uh, you know, she's talked about the idea of wanting to do this for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, it happened to be occur right around the time of, of, of the COVID outbreak. Uh, you know, she herself was a, a victim of that. Uh, you can hear the before and after tracks, the ones that she recorded before she got hit by COVID and, and then afterward. Yeah. So there's a sort of a fragile quality uh, about this recording. The track, The, the Bridge of Sighs at the, at the top that we played, that's a famous uh, poem uh, from 1844 by Thomas Hood about a young woman who commits suicide in yeah. London. She's living a life of you know, despair and destitution, and death is almost a release for her. For these romantic poets, death and beauty 
are walking side by side through well, life. Well, you, you know? know, the problem at the time was consumption. That was the plague of the yeah. era. Yes, they were fascinated with death and the beauty of death and the fragility of life, all those romantics. Fascinated with drugs, too, you know. <laughs> there was a lot going on there, and Marianne relates to a lot of it. You know, there is nothing precious about the way she reads these poems. I mean, it's like this is a voice of experience to talking to you. Her elocution oh my God. Is, so yeah. per- is so perfect. It's so... You know, there, there's a there's a real depth there that you just don't get from just anybody. So the way she's pronouncing some of these words, like when, when she reads The Bridge of Sighs, that's my favorite moment on the record in a lot of ways. Anywhere, anywhere out of the world. Swift to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of the world. You know, her escape, she's longing for that escape. Yeah. And then in Ozymandias, Shelley's poem, uh, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. despair. You know, the voice. <laughs> and despair. The only thing, Jim, I'll say about this record, because I love Marianne and her voice, yeah. and, and the, you know, she's perfect for this readings. I, I find this very soothing in some ways, and it's also beautiful. very, dis, you know, beautiful. disturbing. Yeah. I wish Warren Ellis and her collaborators, who are clearly very smitten with her and, and are good choices. Well, Nick you say collaborators, plural. Brian uh, Eno. On, yeah, Brian Eno, yeah. Right. Two tracks. Right. Two tracks of Brian Eno. I wish there was a little bit more. It's sort of a backdrop, and they're trying to stay out of her way yeah. a little bit. I would have wanted them to push a little bit in terms of just what the arrangements could have been. I think there was a lot of potential there that was unrealized, but I, I still think this is a beautiful record. Well, we also don't know how much the music was crafted in isolation, so that that has put a damper on everything. But, you know, look, she's collaborated with some big ego stars, right? Billy Corgan was yep. on that list, too. And many a fine young lad has been daunted by Marianne. You know, I think the only one who really kept pace was Damon Alburn and maybe Jarvis Cocker. Right. Uh, but, uh, look, yeah, it's beautiful. There's one misstep. There's a nearly 12-minute uh, track that closes the album, Tennyson's uh, The Lady of Shallot. Yeah. I guess Shallot lived down the block from... Shallot or something. or I don't know. I didn't get an A-plus in romantic literature. You know, lived down the block from Camelot. But, yeah, look, hey, every English teacher in the world who's trying to drive home the magic of the romantic poets, the pluses and the occasional minuses... Hey, just make your students listen to this record. <laughs> well, you know, that's a great po- That's a great point. It is like a concise introduction to yes. these poems. One point I wanted to make, because I was thinking, like, what is the precedent for this kind of a record? I keep going back to Billie Holiday's Lady in Satin. Mm. You know, her penultimate record before she died. She died very young. Marian Faithful's outlasted her by 30-plus years. A but, tragic heroine. But, Billie you know, the Holiday. voice was kind of vulnerable at that point. Yeah. And there's a beauty in, in sort of that... You know, in Marianne's face, I wouldn't call it wreckage. In Lady, in in Billie Holiday's case, that voice was, it, yeah, was there was wrecked. wreckage there. But there is sort of a worldliness and a world weariness about those performances that really sticks with you once you once you hear it. My mental state is all a jumble. I sit around and sadly mumble. Other rock icons have attempted this spoken word thing, notably Lou Reed with uh, reading the poems of Edgar Allan Poe. I don't think anybody could pull it off. You said before, ye mighty. You know, ain't no rock person's going to be able to say that with credibility, except, you know, romantic phrase after romantic phrase rolls off Marianne's tongue.
That is a track called Desires from the new Art Deco album in standard definition. Uh, Art Deco, we ought to clarify the spelling of Art Deco. It's a it's pun, a, it's obviously. A pun, yeah. Art as in the name Art. And Deco, D-apostrophe, E-C-C-O. So apparently Art was a uh, prodigy. You know, piano at six, picked up instruments at eight, then his teacher was telling him he was, you know, way advanced for his age. Played in a bunch of Vancouver bands, a Canadian kid. And finally released a solo record in 2016, Day Fevers. Didn't do much, kind of reinvented himself immediately mm-hmm. after. The story goes, and this is kind of a part of the lore. Yeah. You know, Robert Johnson had his crossroads, you know. <laughs> uh, Art Deco found a wig in a, in a mall in, in, But in not Canada. just any mall, a mall in, on uh, Victoria Island. You know, yeah. off of Vancouver, which you have to understand is a little piece of 1850 right, right. right off of Canada. Right. So he, he basically sees this wig, buys it, and reinvents himself as this glam rock persona. Yeah. And uh, that inspires the next record, Trespasser. Total transition into glam. And uh, now we have a follow-up in standard definition that follows along the same path. This record is a step up in terms of production value. He's now working with... Uh, Colin Stewart, who is the name guy in Vancouver for a lot of people. He's produced a ton of records, including by artists such as Black Mountain, Destroyer, Lady Hawk, etc., now working with Art Deco on this record. We're going to review it in a second, but here's a track from it. It's called Head Rush from Art Deco on Soundstream. Is head rush, and indeed it is Mr. Cott, Art Deco. Man, I I love that track. I love this album. I love the whole persona, the uh, gender bending, and the glam rock encyclopedic history. Uh, you know, we have T Rex and we have Bowie and we have Mott the Hoople, but you know, he follows the logical progression through the new romantics. In many ways, uh, those 80s synth bands from the UK, you know, we have a lot of Cure in here and we have Gary Newman. Uh, you know, he's kind of taking this whole thing and mashing it together, but he's a very talented keyboardist. And so we also have these two instrumental interludes which hint at a fascination with Tangerine Dream and its great soundtrack Mm -hmm. music. Um, So the synth sounds throughout are incredible. The dance floor uh, feel of a song like Head Rush uh, and I Am the Dance Floor. Mm -hmm. Indeed he is on that song. That is his preferred pronoun, although in the glam tradition, you know, there's an androgyny, there's an experimental kind of phase. This is Aladdin sane, but, you know, for 2024. Uh, I, I love this record, and it's it's a fun listen from beginning to end. And it's also a smart commentary 
on the obsession with fame. You know, and so there's a lot of commentary about what media and television and celebrity worship does in, in, a, in a kind of low-key way. It's not heavy-handed yeah. ever. Mainly, this is just bubblegum dance music. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think the subject is rather played out. It's not like we haven't heard this before, like no, a million no. times, yeah, but, right? But, you know, but and not, the whole not notion with, of glam rock, not too. Not so many hooks, you We've know? heard it. We, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that's, that's where I come down on this record, is that despite the subject matter perhaps being overplayed, the songs are really good. And the, the variety of the songs, the, you know, the, the one track that sort of got me, the Desires track that we played, I thought this was a really cool reference about being feeling played out. He's in his 30s, and he's kind yeah. of referencing this whole idea like, when do you call it quits? Mm-hmm. It may be over for me, too. You know, yeah. he's not just pointing fingers at the old guy down the street like, get out of the way, here come the kids. I'm, I'm going to be one of those people, too. Yeah. And it's almost like, to my mind, he was referencing a little bit of Scary Monsters era Bowie here, mm. where Bowie's kind of looking back at his career and going back to that guy he was when he was just a kid. You know, you're kind of full circle. You're nobody knows you. Then a lot of people know you, and then you're back to nobody, nobody cares, cares. Yeah. and nobody knows you again. <laughs> so he's kind of playing that cycle through. And I thought, cool idea. I like yeah. it. That track I remember. Wow. I mean, the arrangement on that. That's that's where he ends the record with the acoustic guitars and the strings. He's got some mm-hmm. real strings on here. Some there are real some players. String sounds. Apparently, it's the uh, Victoria Orchestra. There is a part in that song where those vocals go. You know, there's this beautiful shift into falsetto on the vocals and this euphoric counter melody on those synths. He's playing these vintage synthesizers. Wow, what a a cool moment on the record. Just kind of gives you a little chills, you know? And I have to say that track you said you talked about, I Am the Dance Floor, mm-hmm. I, I turned my kitchen into, I was playing Art Deco the other night, and uh, Were you, I you was dancing? Art Deco. I was I, on I the dance floor listening from, to that track uh, on the kitchen. Scott. Well, the kids were shocked. They were all over, and it's like, <laughs> Dad's dancing again by himself Always while he's washing side. dishes, you know? But you've been, I tell you. have been COVID locked up too long. <laughs> Exactly. So thank you, Art Deco, for uh, helping me pass the time in a more uh, constructive way. You know, at least I'm dancing. That is what we think of the new albums from Marianne Faithful and Art Deco. And now we want to hear from you. Let us know your opinions in our Facebook discussion group, on Twitter, on Patreon, or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, we'll talk with guitarist and singer Nancy Wilson about how she got into music, touring the world with heart, and her first solo album on Sound Opinions. We're back. And that is a little bit of the song You and Me by our guest this week, guitarist, singer, and songwriter Nancy Wilson. It is from her debut studio solo album of the same name. 
Nancy's probably best known for her work in the band Heart. Since 1975, she's been captivating audiences with her masterful guitar work and beautiful vocals alongside her sister Anne. In addition to her stellar work in Heart, Nancy's also written scores and curated music for films like Almost Famous, Jerry Maguire, and Vanilla Sky. She's also co-written a book with Anne and journalist Charles R. Cross on the story of Heart, Kicking and Dreaming, in 2012. We are thrilled, absolutely thrilled, Mr. Cott, to welcome Nancy Wilson yes, indeed. to Sound Opinions. Nancy, thanks for doing this. I'm happy to be here. The first solo album in all of these years of music making, you started when you were 20. Why you and me? Why now? Well, something I wanted to always do for quite a long time. Girls and boys have asked me, when are you going to do a proper studio solo album. And I was like, well, as soon as, um, I guess as soon as there's a pandemic and I get shut out <laughs> <laughs> of here. When hell freezes over or a pandemic hits. One when, the the other. When, the, when the worst crisis in a century hits yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> right. When the world stood still. <laughs> it's definitely a blessing, even though the larger situation here has been really the worst you know curse we could ever have lived through the whole attention span has shifted as well before we were shut down people were kind of like okay you know listen to the, the first five seconds of a song and then we're on to the next you know check it out I, I, I like it I don't like it next you know yeah now like when I released my first single, The Rising, the, the Bruce Springsteen song. Which is about five minutes long. <laughs> and people were like, Oh, I love it, I love it, I love it. It's an immersion into a world where you can escape from reality and go into a journey through Zong and not be bored immediately. So it was really <laughs> an interesting observation for our times right now. Well, and what you did with that song, uh, taking it in, in a folk direction, I saw a great quote that you'd given that part of the inspiration for, for making this record, you were surrounded by all your guitars at home, all your amps, and you were connecting with your pre-heart self when you were in college, creating, uh, quote, poetic, intimate, romantic songs. Why don't you take us back there, Nancy? Uh, you know, because I, I think uh, people know the love mongers, uh, you and Anne, your sister, doing, uh, you know, uh, semi-acoustic. But, uh, you know, the idea of you uh, 18, 19, 20 playing in college folk songs. I, yeah, I was a brave soul that it would you go out and do solo acoustic, you know, uh, coffee shops and, and little taverns, little bars and stuff, because I was trying to earn money to buy a better guitar <laughs> and record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I had an early experience, more intimate experience. I mean, I would play stuff like Stairway to Heaven by myself. I, I would play Jethro Tull. I would play rock songs and Beatles songs and Joni Mitchell songs and Neil Young songs. And, you know, so I had like a gamut of, of a variety of, of the types of songs I could do. 
even Misty. I even learned Misty. So somebody, <laughs> somebody always has to request that if they had a drink or two, right? So uh, play a Misty for me. You're right. So, yeah, so I, I kind of uh, became adept at, you know, accompanying myself and pl uh, learning how to play guitar more like a, a one-girl band, you know, sort of. I learned how to how to rock it, how to put bass lines in, how to be a rhythm player, kind of a semi-sort of lead player inside of rhythm parts. And so that experience in college, being a solo artist was really um, a great you know, learning curve for me to know how to kind of be writing stuff on my own. And then knowing that I was going to eventually joined the band because Anne had an open invitation sitting there for me. Mm. But at first I had to gotta go find my own, you know, declaration of independence outside of Anne because I was always the shadow, the little sister, yeah. the shadow. So I think I really gained a lot of footing there and I was able to kind of bring those tools into the band when I finally joined the band. And I kind of brought the acoustic sensibility to that band and a lot of more harmony singing as well. Yeah, yeah. playing it, it sounded like you were doing a lot of trial by fire like in, in, in performing in front of people but were you did you have a teacher or were you completely self-taught how did that work early on well early on I was just you know learning by ear I mean I'd had a lot of music all around me with our, our family you know aunts and uncles and granddad and grandma and cousins and we'd all get together and we'd all sing harmonies and play ukuleles and there's piano around all the time and yeah I come by it um, honestly and I never really except for a couple of piano lessons that didn't go well my, wow. teacher, <laughs> my teacher had a nervous breakdown Wow, uh, it wasn't my fault but still she was on a different path but anyway mm -hmm. so I just brought all of my natural ability to the guitar learned learned the chords from the Mel Bay chord music book, you know, that you got at the music store mm -hmm. back in the music ma and pa music store days. And I learned how to play the G and the C and the D and the couple of suspended and diminished type chords. And But I already had theory because when you sing harmony with your family and the intervals in, in, in harmony singing, you know, you already have the structure and the blueprint for music theory. And mm. I, then I took music theory when I was at university, too. And boy, I narrowly escaped that class. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing too much can ruin you, right? Yeah. It's really so mathematical. I was like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. This is deep water for me, but I still passed. And it was really, you know, a good education. I learned a lot, too. Yeah. So I learned a lot to bring back to the band once I finally joined.
I'm curious about, and you said you joined the band and it was like a fait accompli, but the story that I keep hearing over and over again is that you had to audition for the band. Was that true for your sister's band? Well, she was the front person, and she had already warned them that that I was going to come into the band, but they were not (laughs) so happy about it. I mean, you know, it was the the group of guys that kind of weren't so sure that bringing another girl into the band wasn't going to wimp out the band. Like, oh, now we're going to have to, you know, do flowery ballads. (laughs) More than one girl, look out. But also when when we had the album started, because when I first walked into it, they'd already been turned down by every major label a couple of times. And then the local indie label called Mushroom Records was interested because they, they'd seen Anne sing in a club, a cabaret in Vancouver. And and I, I was like a newcomer in the band, so we were all already writing there was a producer who came, Mike Flicker, sauce. It was word of mouth that there's this amazing singer down at the cabaret. And uh, I was just new into the band. So he said, I want to make a record with you guys. And so I was like, oh, cool. This is just my luck. I get to join a band that's immediately going to make a record, mm-hmm. which was a dream. And so when the record company guy came, and the producer guy came to our house, the band house. <laughs> we all lived together. You know, it was sort of like, okay, we know what Anne can do, but what can her little sister do? So mm. why don't you audition here and play play and sing something for me now? So it was really nerve-wracking because oh, it was man. me in a living room with the band and a couple of, you know, business guys. Mm. They were kind of like, uh, okay, thanks a lot. we're gonna go talk in the next room and what they did was they said to Anne, they said you know she's she's not as special as you are okay so really what we want is you we want you and we want to put you up front and probably hire a few new musicians as well and she was like I don't go anywhere without my sister so (laughs) he said no and she turned down a golden opportunity wow. to be, you know, an ornamental front girl uh, in mm-hmm. order to stick to our plan, which was to join forces and be songwriters and be in this band together. So, yeah, I, <laughs> it hurt mm-hmm. my feelings, like it really hurt my feelings. But then when she stuck up for me and said, no, we're doing this together, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I think we did okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, those first <laughs> albums uh, give us Magic Man and Barracuda. You know, uh, that, that's, that's uh, you know, those, those are a heck of a salvo coming out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We came to play. <laughs> <laughs> This year alone, you know, one of the guitar manufacturers put you on a list of uh, 
the best female uh, guitarists uh, ever, and you got this She Rocks Legend Award, all right? You know, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, the album ends, the new album, You and Me, with a track called For Edward, which is a beautiful a tribute to Eddie Van Halen that starts with a kind of classical mode and then shifts into Eddie Explosion. never called Eddie Van Halen one of the best male rock guitarists. And here you are, after all these decades, you, 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 we still have to qualify. You're not we, not Greg and I. Mm. I wonder if that pisses you off. You you know, Anne has always, uh, I've interviewed Anne uh, more often than I've gotten to interview you. Anne gets mad, and mm. I love that, right? But but you, you just generally seem to, like, shrug off that kind of stuff. Oh, you know, I when I was just starting out as a player, like about nine years old, I I I really took to it. Like, I was obsessed with playing guitar, and I got really proficient really early, as a kid. By the time I was twelve, you know, I was doing like able to play stuff like Angie, you know, the mm -hmm. Simon Garfunkel instrumental song. I had finger style going. I had rhythm style going. I had probably better than I am today style, but um, because when you're just consumed with learning and the, the love of learning an instrument like that, um, it gives back and it, it's your best friend and you, you know, you want to just sleep with it in your bed, you know, it's like <laughs> not very comfortable, I gotta say, but. Not as bad as a drum set though. <laughs> yeah, drums. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> room in the bed. <laughs> yeah. mm. Excuse me, Mr. Symbol, I gotta move yeah, over this yeah. way. Yes, yeah, so I go down to the, the little uh, music store, Bandstand East in Bellevue, and um, I'd go, you know, play guitars there that were better than the one I had at home, and I'd sit in the music store and I'd just like show off, you know, I'd just like show off, and people would come around and go, whoa, their jaws would kind of hit the ground and they'd be like, how old are you? You know, like little girl? and. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm 12, yeah, I'm good, okay. I was mm. just a shock, and um, I think that before, as at that age too, before I had any kind of gender-specific, you know, um, awareness of my sexuality, I was just a kid who was kind of sort of novice, you know, and so when people kind of ever put me down or never included me in their lists or whatever, which never really happened until recently. I just don't, I, why should I care? You know, I've, I feel like what I've earned as a player is the magic that happens on live stages and mm -hmm. how people, how you see how that absorbs into their lives and what it means in their lives. And, you know, we do these meet and greets before shows often mostly most of the time and that people are like oh you and your guitar playing nobody ever you're the most underrated you know guitar player and it's like yeah but you're here gushing at me so that's all that mm. matters to me yeah that connection yeah 
pioneering guitar player, you know, I think also the fact that you mentioned the harmony vocals, which were so critical. Did you and your sister used to sing together when you were growing up? I, I imagine you had to, right, to have that sort of natural oh, chemistry. God. The whole family was, were singers together. I mean, Anne had a thing. Um, she had this knack to, to imitate other singers. And her best one at, a, at any party, like the family would go, my mom and dad would go, Anne, girls, come downstairs, do your Ethel Merman Im imitation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and we do it, you know, it's just a little kid going, this is a moment. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> and she's big, you know, she just had this big gift, big delivery system of a voice with, you know, all kinds of presence and all kinds of, it would, you know, she should fill a room with, with her voice, with or without a microphone. Mm -hmm. And, um... We'd make little bands with girls in our school. We'd enlist them to come be harmony singers with our two. Me and Anne would play guitars and we'd do, you know, popular music. And we'd go play places like like gymnasiums and schools. And we actually played at a at a drive-in theater one time. <laughs> <laughs> Before the movie or in between? It's It was before the movie as the sun begins to set. You know, there would usually be somebody that would go, all right, folks, you know, the movie is going to start in another 20 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, go get your concession sessions now at the, you know, at the concession cafe or whatever. And so somehow somebody knew someone that said, hey, these girls can sing. Maybe put those girls on for 20 minutes before the movie. So it was like there's this one, you know, wooden podium and one microphone sticking out of it. That we were all, you know, huddled around this one microphone, yeah, doing stuff like Peter Paul and Mary, you know, if I had my way, and you know, like rousing folk music stuff. Hmm. So we we had a lot of genres we we could cover, and I mean, Heart Still has always been a pretty versatile, you know, in our in our songs too. It's a big spectrum of stuff we can pull off. Coming up, we talk with Nancy about how a low point for Hart in the early 80s led to a massive commercial comeback, and her feelings on the band's hair metal era today. Plus, touring with Queen and how Hart became mentors to burgeoning Seattle bands, including Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Nirvana. That's up next on Sound Opinions. Possibilities of getting what I need. He looked at me and smiled. Said, No, 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 child. See the dog and butterfly. We're back. 
This week, we're talking with guitarist, singer, and songwriter Nancy Wilson of Heart. Let's get back to the conversation. I'm fascinated by Heart's arc. You know, you started out with those first couple albums, which were just huge, and had a bunch of hits right out of the gate. And then, you know, Nancy, what I'm thinking is, like, you hit that trough in the early 80s where it, it, things sort of bottomed out a little bit. You know, I know that some of the band members were having some substance issues, substance abuse issues. Yeah. And a lot of bands would have probably called it a night, you know, at that point. And yet, Hart persevered and then had another string of hits in the mid, mid to late 80s uh, into the 90s. Now you've had hits in four decades. How did you sustain that in that period of crisis? Keep going and then come back in many ways stronger than ever having having more hits. I think, you know, dogged determination is one part of it. Um, being from a military family and all that, you know, we knew already about the average lifespan of most rock bands. You know, you're very cool for about five years, if you're lucky, and then you're not cool. And so you have to reinvent, you know, and, you know, renew your vows. Yeah. Mm. And um, maybe, you know, reinvent your fashion statement, reinvent what's happening in the culture, because that keeps reinventing itself. And it's easy to become passe when that happens, too. So, mm-hmm. and we got... We got a little too full of ourselves, I think, at the beginning of the 80s there, too. We were like, oh, yeah, we can do no wrong, and, you know, we're cool no matter what. And it, that's when we had our worst flop, you know, of a, of a um, private audition was mm-hmm. the album. Because it, we just got so full of ourselves, we thought, oh, you know, we could do, like, slapstick songs. We could do, you know, the Beatles did stuff like that on the White Album. We're, we are the Beatles, aren't we? So <laughs> <laughs> we got lazy, and, you know, we got spoiled, and and we got kind of got dropped almost. And so in order to, you know, to survive, we kind of saw the 80s coming in with MTV, with all of the the bombastic and big hair and the costumery of it all. And we kind of said, okay, whatever it takes, we're going to do it so that we don't get, you know, left behind. And um, so that was, that was a, (laughs) as we say, a far out learning experience Mm -hmm. going through the eighties, the mid eighties into the late eighties, because, you know, there were songs by other people that they really wanted us to do. And, we still had our own songs on our albums, but there was a, a real pressure to do these L.A. stable songwriter songs like Aerosmith. All the bands were being yeah. pressured to do the same things. And yeah. so we kind of we kind of put on the, the, the costumes and we did the videos and, you know, my feet still hurt from the stilettos. and. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, and, you know, I, I did a piece on uh, uh, with Anne at that point um, about the sexism of Anne, you know, was not perfectly curvy like Playboy model. Uh, yeah. She was curvier. And, you know, and so therefore she's shrouded in veils. And, and it was, it was a, a great interview and her frankness and honesty, you know, and, and having had that kind of uh, industry manipulation foisted upon you, it then felt like such a victory when your fellow Washington State uh, musicians of the early alternative era were claiming, you know, you and your sister, not as great female inspirations, as great rock inspirations, period. You know, Uh, you know, it was like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was really an amazing moment. You know, I always say that at the end of the 80s, the moment uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit arrived in the culture, there were all these bands that had record deals, you know, with big hair bands that Mm. had record deals that were instantaneously just dropped because the entire culture shifted like a flash mob right then at that moment. And we were like, we were that band, you know. we, We... we were shallow and now we're dinosaurs and <laughs> why did we you know why did we allow ourselves to be you know kind of forced into those outfits and stuff like that and be simpering and pouting and pinning the lens <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And, uh, so we went back to Seattle with our tail between our legs basically and that's around the time my best oldest dearest friend Kelly Curtis who then was managing Mother Love Bone before it became Pearl Jam, was sad to tell us that Mother Love Bone's singer, Andrew Wood, had mm-hmm. had OD'd and was no longer. So th- they uh, they had come to us, to me and Anne, and said, can you, we had a record deal, of course, that just fell through because there's, there's no singer. Mm. And we're looking for a singer. And... Is it possible you could loan us a few months of money to live on until we can find our new singer and get another record deal? Mm. So we said, yeah, we're, we're going to loan you a few grand here and just write a little IOU out. I'll put it in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's cool. We lent yeah. those guys money, and then, then they found Eddie Vedder, and they paid us back. That but worked. Was, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 owe you, they should pay you times 10 for that deal. Yeah. It worked out pretty well for them. Uh, sad for Andrew, though, obviously. Yeah, what a crisis. And we went to Andrew Wood's um, kind of wake in Seattle, and that's where we met all the Soundgarden and, you know, Screaming Trees and Alice in Chains and all those bands and all those cool guys who were so sweet to us and received us with open arms and respect and admiration. It's like, you know, me and Jerry Cantrell, the first time we jammed was like, how do you play the beginning of Mistral Wind? You know, because it's <laughs> that great dissonance that, you know, the, the beautiful kind of dissonance thing that Alice in Change is so well known for. So we got our brotherhood there now, and we still do. Everybody still supports each other in that community. It's so different from the L.A. community where it's so in, it's an industry town. Seattle is a community, music community town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
have read that there is uh, perhaps a Hart biopic in the works, kind of modeled on that Queen movie that was uh, surprisingly very good. That was amazing. I loved Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it, you did, I, it didn't seem like it would work, but it did. Mm-hmm. Did Hart ever play with Queen in the day? Oh, God, yeah. We, we toured Europe with Queen and Nazareth. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were just newbies at the time. We were really, we were just get, getting started. Our album was, you know, new. It was a new album. Yeah. Um, we toured with Queen, I think probably because of Freddie Mercury picked us because, you know, it takes a diva to want to work with another. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a diva to know a diva. Yeah. Know a diva. That's right. You know, a very talented diva to know yeah. a diva. And uh, so it was It was fun because Brian May is, couldn't be a sweeter person in, on the planet. And they were all really great. They were all really supportive. Um, and we got to, you know, we got to crouch behind the PA column and watch their show every night after we played. And backstage, Fred, uh, Freddie was so, you know, enamored with Anne, the the divas that they are. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, oh, Anne, oh, Anne, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You have a spare black eyeliner, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Swapping makeup tips. Oh god! Yeah, right. You always had an extra one just in case. But 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 but, but will uh, there be a biopic? I mean, you start your film career as girl in car, in fast a pretty pretty girl in car. I'm sorry, in Fast Times in Ridgemont High. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> are you now going to be immortalized on screen, possibly by some young uh, talented musician actress? Well, yeah, I should, certainly hope so. I mean, um, we uh, we had meetings with Carrie Brownstein, and who did Portlandia. She's brilliant, the, brilliant, brilliant. She's a great writer. She's funny. Not sure, you know, what Amazon is going to do about her directing or not directing. We don't know, but that would be cool too. That but would be all right. The uh, the script, you know, the last version of the script that I uh, read was really cool. Um, there's always going to be a few notes, you know, still to, to do to incorporate. And it, it's based on what the book, Kicking and Dreaming, it, it's that timeline. It's more right. about, you know, young girls getting their start and mm-hmm. finding that their sisterhood is their survival mechanism through which to endure <laughs> the... Mm-hmm. Uh, the the lifestyle. And you and Anne wrote that together, right? The book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, with Charlie Charles Cross from Seattle, right. who wrote a whole bunch of amazing rock books. But we worked with him for a few years, actually. He came out on the road, and we did it. We interviewed, and he recorded. And most of it's in our own words. But So that's kind of where the script goes from, from there to there. It doesn't go past. It's not about husbands you know or anything it's kind of about those that exact era yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it has been an honor and a privilege talking to nancy wilson of heart with a fantastic new solo album uh thanks nancy for being on sound opinions 
Thanks, you guys. Happy to do it. I love talking about music. I could do it all day. <laughs> all right. <laughs> that wraps up our conversation with Nancy Wilson. And as always, we want to hear from you. Share your opinions with us at our Facebook discussion group, Patreon, Twitter, or leave us a voice message at our website, soundopinions.org. Also, look out for our bonus podcast episode where we talk more with Nancy about the future of heart, her film score work, and Jim and Nancy's meeting on the set of Almost Famous. Good stuff, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to take a deep dive into the history of Malico Records, a really important label in the world of gospel and soul music. Fascinating story, too. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Sol Delgadillo. Just a mention of your name Turns the flicker